Welcome to the Maranatha Baptist Church Podcast. It is our prayer that this sermon from God's Word will be a blessing to you and will grow your love for Jesus Christ. We would encourage you to use it only as a supplement to your regular intake of God's Word in your local church. If you need help connecting with a local church, please reach out to us on our website, mbcgrimes.org. If you have your Bible today, you can open to Acts chapter 20, the text we already read together and got a little bit of a taste of as we work our way through it today. Uh, You can open there again. And think about what it means as a church to be a thriving flock. Acts chapter 20 is one of the passages where that metaphor is used. The church is called the flock of God, which he purchased with the blood of his son. And so as we think about that, we think about what it means to be the flock of God and how we can thrive. A drink of water after singing like that is always helpful. As I mentioned earlier, this is a major transition in the book of Acts and for the early church. You saw it in our reading. Paul is preparing these believers for his departure. Sometimes in life, at a big transition like that, sometimes it can even be the departure of somebody we looked up to, somebody we respected, somebody we had followed in the faith. But it may not be just a departure like that. There can be other things that leave us feeling, maybe the way these Ephesian elders are feeling, a big life transition. Maybe a high school student, you know, finishes school and they're headed into college and they're getting used to what's next and maybe even wonder, Lord, what do you have for me? Maybe there's a job transition, right? You've known kind of what your task was and you did that job for years and years and years, but then suddenly you either lost that job or maybe have headed into retirement and all of a sudden there's that question, what's next? What does the Lord have for me? Maybe you're even grieving the loss of a loved one in your life, someone who had kind of been that rock or that steady place, the person you had sort of been following in ways. And now without them, you wonder, what's next? Where are we headed? That's, I think, in some ways what these Ephesian elders are experiencing as they, in a sense, lose their dear brother, the Apostle Paul, this one that had probably led them to the Lord and helped them grow in the faith. As we've been studying the book of Acts, it's likely that Paul was in Ephesus for at least three years. And so he had, he had discipled these guys and had been in battle with them. And you see the emotion at the end of the text as they're just weeping at the fact that they probably won't see him again. And yet, even with that weeping, this text becomes an encouraging text for us because Paul's reminding them that, hey, it's okay. This is not the end of the story. And I've declared to you the things you need to participate in the mission of God and to be a part of a thriving church that goes forward and takes the gospel and completes the great commission that Jesus had given to the disciples and then to the church. And so ultimately, he's encouraging them to thrive. And you may have noticed as we read the text that it kept coming back to some similar phrases, the the word of God's grace. I declared to you all those things that you needed to know. All those ideas that, that come up over and over again refer to what we have today as the scriptures, the word of God. So Paul's really saying, look, in the written word of God, in the scriptures, and with God's Holy Spirit, you have everything you need 
to thrive, to have direction, to know what the Lord wants of you, and also to do it. And so we're going to think today what it means to thrive as the flock of God. And to do that, we must follow His Word and His Spirit. Now let's gain a little context and kind of remember uh, where we are in Paul's travels and journeys. And our maps, maps are fun, aren't they? Especially in, in the book of Acts here to kind of track along with everything that's happening. You can remember Paul is hurrying to make his way back to Jerusalem. You remember that from last week? He's hoping to get there for the feast, the day of Pentecost. And, and if you remember, he's traveling with a gift for that church But not only is he traveling with a gift, he's traveling ultimately with the burden of the Holy Spirit, that this is where he needs to go. And he emphasizes that again in today's text, that this is a burden of the Spirit to get back to Jerusalem. So on his journey back to Jerusalem, we've been tracking along with him, and so you can look at the map up here. Remember, he was way over here in in Greece and came up and around, not even on the map, just in the ceiling of our gym there. And then he came back down into these areas and landed at Troas and then began to make his way down. And, and, and you can look at the, the travels in verses 13 through 16 of Acts chapter 20. It's just this list of places and islands. And the, they're all here, right? So uh, I won't try to pronounce them all for you. We did that last week. But uh, here they are, these islands. And he's making his way down. Finally, he lands at Miletus. And we're reminded in verse 16 that he passed up Ephesus because he was in a hurry to get back to Jerusalem. And that was a big decision for him because these are dear saints, dear believers there in Ephesus in that church that he had started. So instead what he does in verse 17 is from the city of Miletus, which you see right here, he sends word to the elders in Ephesus. Now on the map, they look very close. In ancient times, in Paul's times, that would have been about a one-day journey traveled by foot. Okay, so that's a, it's a long walk <laughs> to get from uh, Ephesus down to Miletus, but it's still doable and very common in that day. And so Paul calls for the elders. He has a special message to give to the elders. He wants to share something with them and teach them something. So there you go. You have a little context of where we are. We're located in Miletus, but the Ephesian elders have come down to meet with Paul. Now, you notice in verses 17 and 18, they arrive and Paul has some instructions for them. And in these first verses, really verse 17 through 21, we're going to see Paul's emphasis on the gospel. You can even see it there in verse 21. What Paul did was he testified to Jews and to Greeks repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. So as we work through these verses, we're going to see that in order to thrive as a church in the word and the spirit, we must remain grounded in the gospel. And in that specific gospel response that that repents towards God, meaning I turn back to God and then faith towards the Lord Jesus Christ. I keep trusting him and his words to me. And not only is that the response to the gospel, but that really becomes the whole response of the Christian life over and over and over again. Not just daily, but like all through the day. We ought to find ourselves turning back to God as he reveals something. Ah, that was off. That's not right. Father, I turn back to you and I trust you by faith. I want to live for you as we step forward. This is what it looks like to remain grounded in the gospel Notice how Paul explains it to the elders, these these pastors of the church in Ephesus. 
First verse 18, he says, you know, from the first time I came to Asia, and if I pulled the map back up, that region that Ephesus is in, that was called Asia at that time, so a little different than uh, our current Asia today, but you get the idea, that's, that's Ephesus. In what manner I always lived among you. Paul's going to use his own life as an example of gospel-grounded living. I lived among you this way. You saw in my life how the gospel bears fruit. Well, what kind of fruit did it bear? Verse 19, serving the Lord with all humility, with tears and trials which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews. So it was humble, right? The gospel does indeed make us low. It was faithful, right? Even even though there was suffering, the apostle Paul continued to preach and to teach through tears and trials. Actually, at the beginning of verse 19, he even calls himself a servant. That's the word for bondservant. And the Apostle Paul refers to himself that, that way many times in the Scriptures. That's a gospel response, isn't it? The gospel teaches us that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And because Jesus gave his life for us so that we could have life, we then live for him. And so the Apostle Paul lived that way. He's like, my life is for serving Christ because of the gospel. And so, verse 20, we read how he kept back nothing that was helpful. Now, we could read that at first and think, well, I mean, he just like gave them gifts, he gave them everything, but it has a particular focus on teaching, and we see that by the contrast because he says, rather than keeping things back, I proclaimed it to you. So, the opposite of keeping it back is proclaiming it. So, Paul's saying, I proclaimed the truth I proclaimed everything you need to know, everything that was helpful. I taught you. I instructed you in the scriptures so that you'd be fully equipped as a church. How did he do this? He taught publicly and from house to house. This would have represented the gathering of the whole Ephesian church, which apparently we we don't know exactly its size, but it's large enough to have multiple pastors, right? And so there were times when the church gathered as a whole and probably had to find some public spaces in the city of Ephesus where they could all gather, like we're doing here in our gymnasium today, where they'd hear the teaching and the preaching of the Word of God. But also, it was house to house, where the Apostle Paul was going and teaching and instructing. We could imagine like small group Bible studies, maybe like our own growth groups. That's probably what Paul called them back in that day. No, I'm kidding. But see, this is how the church was built, around the word, as Paul went and taught and instructed. But you're going to notice, Paul makes it clear, it doesn't depend on the apostle Paul doing the teaching, it depends on the teaching, the word. And so they can continue, this is filled with hope. Finally, verse 21, what was Paul teaching? He was testifying to Jews and to Greeks, the idea there is everyone heard that they needed to turn to God, repentance toward God, and they needed to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The early church was established on the gospel, and God uses the faithful preaching of the gospel to establish his church, and so for a church to thrive, it must remain grounded in the gospel. You understand that foundations are important. Maybe you've watched the the building of a building and uh, they dig down and build those deep foundations. Maybe you've even had the opportunity to see uh, the foundations being put in on a skyscraper. Have you ever had the chance to see that? 
uh, that is quite a sight to see. If you've ever been to New York City or the, or the best city in the world, Chicago, uh, then, okay, I had to put that in there. But anyway, uh, you, you might have the opportunity to see them building a skyscraper. And what, what's really interesting about building a skyscraper is the first direction you go is actually down, way down, deep. And they build these huge, massive concrete footings underneath the tall, tall skyscraper. A foundation is important. The same is true in so many categories of life. My mind went, of course, to soccer. It's fun having the De Silva's here last week and playing a little soccer with them. And it got my mind thinking about those years uh, that I spent coaching and playing soccer. And one of the little known things about soccer is how important uh, form is in kicking. Right? Most people just think, well, there's a ball, and so you just run up and you know, kick it with your foot however you want to. But actually, your foundation is really important. And so I've had the opportunity to coach little kids, and it's just super cute to watch all the different ways they come up with to try to kick the ball. Uh, and believe it or not, the first place we instruct is not actually the kicking foot. The first place we instruct is actually what we call the planting foot. Okay, we talk about the planting foot first. Why? Because where your planting foot is facing determines ultimately the direction the ball goes. Now, of course, you could just hit it in a really strange way and it could go off any which direction. But if your planting foot is off, then your kick will be off. And so we start by instructing them how to plant their foot next to the ball. And you want your toes pointed the direction the ball is going to go. And then you have that solid foundation to strike through the ball and get the ball to go where you want it to go. Foundation makes a difference. The church is founded, it's grounded in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that specific response, not only understanding that Jesus died for our sins and rose again, but that response to him that says, my way of living was wrong, it led to death. And so God, I turn to you, you are right. And I trust in your provision of salvation, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for me and rose again. Repentance, and faith. They're two sides of the same coin. Now, the scriptures are clear. All, all that we do to receive the gospel, to, to become believers, is to trust, to trust. But it's built into the gospel itself that there's this admission that we were wrong. That's repentance toward God. I was wrong. God, you are right. I trust in your salvation. This is the, the foundation of the church. This is how a person is born again receives the Holy Spirit, which as we'll study in this text is crucial for the growth of the church. And so it really begins here to be sure that each of us has trusted in Christ as Savior and that becomes the foundation we begin with as we invest in others. Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior? Have you turned to God by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? This is the foundation. And so I encourage you to know the gospel. I wonder if somebody asked you to share the gospel with them, you know, in 60 seconds, or, or maybe just generally to share the gospel. How confident would you feel that you could tell them how they could become a Christian? Well, if you're not sure, there are three little parts that help me to remember the process of the gospel. There's lots of ways to share the gospel, but here's one that's been helpful to me. It really begins with the bad news. We need to understand the problem before we value the solution. And so the bad news is the truth that we're all sinners. But to explain that we're all sinners, you kind of have to begin with God, 
being a holy and righteous God and perfect and given us his perfect word to live by and that in his perfect kingdom there can be no sin. But because you and I fell short of that perfection, we sinned. And the punishment for that sin is separation from God and torment in eternal hell. This is the bad news of the gospel. And that's our starting place. But then it goes to the good news. The good news that God in his love sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to live a sinless life so that he could be the spotless lamb of God, the perfect sacrifice for our sins. On his way to the cross, he never sinned. He took upon himself the sins of the entire world and then he died and rose again, showing that the payment had been made in full and he conquered our sin and death. But the good news doesn't end there. Because if he had just done that, that would be good. But the good news gets even better because then he offers salvation to any who will trust in him. See, this is the good news of the gospel. That if a person will turn to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith, recognizing that my way of living led to my death, the picture of living for myself is the cross itself. And so I turn to God say, my way led to death. Thank you for Jesus. I trust in him to save me from my sins and to give me life everlasting. That's the last piece of the gospel, the response. Bad news, good news, response. And that response is what Paul emphasizes here in our text, that he testified to both Jews and Greeks repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, some just want to add Jesus to their life. Like getting a new iPhone. The new iPhone just came out, and I'm not recommending that you get one or don't get one, but a lot of cell phone companies have a deal right now where if you trade in your old phone uh, and get on like a three-year payment plan or whatever, you actually can get the new iPhone for free, right? That's a pretty tempting offer. Wow, man, that sounds good. I think I'd like to add that to my life because that would make my life a whole lot better, right? I have a faster phone. I can take great pictures and so on and so forth. Many times people treat Jesus this way. Oh, all I have to do is believe? Sign me up. And I get Jesus? He's going to make my life so much better. But that misses what genuine faith in Christ is. It misses the bad news of the gospel that says, my way of living led to death. So the point is not to add Jesus to my life. The point is to recognize that my life is death. I turn to God. That you are right. I was wrong. Thank you for the salvation you offer me in Jesus. I believe. I believe. And so Paul goes testifying repentance and faith in the gospel. It's this right understanding of the gospel that leads to Paul's perspective in ministry. A bondservant of Christ That happens when we realize that I was dead before Jesus. I didn't just add him to my life to make my life better. I was dead. And when that's my gospel perspective, it's it's no surprise then that Paul can say, I'm the servant of Christ because he gave me everything. So he's serving the Lord. The humility flows out of the gospel as well because the gospel reminds us that I'm a filthy sinner. I was dead in my trespasses and sins, yet Jesus loved me. This makes me both small and unworthy and yet also humbled by the love of God. And so ministry in the church is defined by humility that flows right out of the gospel that reminds us who we are 
small, sinners, dead, saved by Jesus. We also see faithfulness flowing out of the gospel. Paul says that he kept ministering through tears and trials. The gospel reminds us that whatever trials come upon us, they're they're far less than we actually deserve. The cross is the picture of what we deserved. And so if the Lord has us going through some trials in in the part of his proclaiming the gospel and accomplishing his mission, so be it. Paul says, through tears and trials, I kept proclaiming. It flows right out of the gospel. See, as we take in the gospel, we become a gospel-shaped people, grounded in what Christ has done for us and then compelled to go forward and share it with others. I wonder, how are you repenting and trusting in Jesus in your Christian life right now? This is not just the response of salvation. This is actually the the daily, lifelong response of the believer. Not that we need to be saved again. That's not what I mean. But that this this process happens over and over again. When, When God grows me, what happens is that he reveals in my life, he brings something to the surface. Often it's a trial that just kind of rips my heart open and then Lance comes spilling out and it's kind of gross. Right? We end up seeing some attitude or some sinful way of thinking or, or greed or anger or, or you name it. It's all in there. Right? And so God lets some of that spill out. And that same gospel response gets to happen again. Oh, Father, my way is wrong. I see it again. The, the anger and, and, and what just came out of my heart, that, that's not the way of life. That leads to death. In fact, you sent your son so I could be saved from that way of living. So I turn to you again and I trust your forgiveness and I trust your help to put on the virtues of the Lord Jesus Christ, to put humility and kindness and patience in its place. I trust that you will help me to do that. See, this is the Christian response day in and day out, grounded in the truths of the gospel. So, To thrive as a church, it begins there. But Paul continues to unfold why the church is going to be okay. And it's not just that they're grounded in the gospel, but number two, it's because they can stay focused on their mission to share the word. And this is really what he encourages them to do in verses 22 through 27, to stay focused on their mission. And once again, he does it by his own testimony. Notice Paul's just laser-like focus on what Jesus had called him to do. The Holy Spirit, or excuse me, verse 22. See, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that change and tribulations await me. Paul is committed to doing what the Spirit wants him to do. He knows the Holy Spirit wants him to go to Jerusalem, but he doesn't know exactly what's going to unfold. Here's what he does know. Chains and tribulations await him. Can you imagine marching forward in the will of God, knowing that you're headed to prison and torture? That'd be tough, right? I struggle to do the will of God when it's easy. And here Paul marches forward in the will of God, knowing exactly what God is leading him to do, knowing that prison and tribulations are coming. Now, he doesn't know how it's going to turn out. He doesn't know if he's going to die. He doesn't know if he's going to continue on. This is part of why this is such a dramatic farewell to the Ephesian pastors. Paul, I think, is aware that he could die in Jerusalem. 
and yet he presses on. Notice verse 23, or excuse me, verse 24. None of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Not only was the gospel Paul's foundation, but it was his fuel. The Lord Jesus had given it to him. I mean, you remember the dramatic conversion when Jesus appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus and called him to this ministry of sharing the gospel. And Paul says, look, all that matters to me is that I please my master. Jesus called me out of darkness into his light, and so I press on, and I will keep sharing the gospel. Threats of change and tribulations don't deter me. The joy comes from pleasing Jesus. And so he presses on. What an example And I think he's encouraging the Ephesian elders to live this same way. Notice verse 25. Indeed, now I know that uh, that you all, among whom I've gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. This is his goodbye. Therefore, I testify to you, I'm innocent of the blood of all men, for I've not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Paul can actually say he's concluding his ministry with the Ephesians with a clear conscience. He, he says he's innocent of the blood of all men. Why? Because he has faithfully declared the whole counsel of God. <clears throat> that word counsel of God means the, the plan and purpose of God. And, and I think it, it's a gospel explanation of the scriptures that Paul was unfolding. Remember, at this time, they didn't have all the, the letters of the New Testament. They didn't have all of the New Testament scriptures that we have today. They're, they're being written at this time, Right? But Paul unfolded the scriptures and explaining the gospel and how this is the plan and purpose of God to bring people to salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ, the whole counsel of God. Because Paul had preached faithfully, he says, I I press on with a clean conscience. You know, that's encouraging to us in ministry because sometimes we get so wrapped up in how people respond It's important to remember that what really matters, am I pleasing Jesus? Am I seeking to live in a way that obeys his commands, that does what he's called me to do, that reflects the gospel in my life, that doesn't guarantee the response of people? Even in Ephesus, we saw that. There were some who came to faith and trusted in Christ. There were others who rioted. But Paul says, my conscience is clear. I preach the word so God could work through that. This is a special reminder to us how important it is we stay focused on our mission to share the word. Now, we look at a text like this, and we can kind of think to ourselves, well, this is just for Paul, right? I mean, he had that unique experience with Jesus on the road to Damascus where the light appeared to him. It was Christ speaking with him, and he called him to be a a preacher of the gospel, right, To, to take the gospel forward. And so that's totally different. That's for Paul. That's not for me today. Well, I mean, that's a good question to ask. Is it God's mission for us to share the gospel? Oh, yeah, it is. It is. Now, 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 God's unique calling in Paul's life was, was for him. That's not the same for each of us. But indeed, the Lord Jesus Christ has given each of us a very similar mission. We're not apostles, but we're members of the body of Christ. And we know very clearly from Scripture what our purpose is as believers in Jesus. It's to show the world that Jesus is the Savior. 
most clearly by proclaiming the gospel. And so our mission is not dissimilar from Paul's mission here. And we ought to have the same laser-like focus on what Jesus has called us to do, to stay focused on our mission to share the word. It's so easy to get distracted, even by good things. My previous job before coming here as pastor, I worked at Faith Baptist Bible College. I was the dean of students for a number of years there. And uh, as the dean of students, I was in charge of orientation, which is when the new students arrived on campus and we kind of gave them the instructions of how, how school works and all of that. And so that was my responsibility. I was in charge of it. I ran it and with the help of a staff and so forth. But, uh, but that was kind of on me. And I remember one year at orientation, there was a lot going on as we were getting ready, and it was actually coming down to the last few minutes, time for the first session to start. And so parents had gathered and students had gathered in the room, and uh, I was making the final touches. In fact, there was still one sign that I needed to finish and print and hang up in order to, you know, once the session was done so that parents could get to the right place. And so I was in my office, you know, making adjustments to this sign and getting ready to print it, and, and somebody walked in my office and said, uh, you know, we really need to get the first session going. I said, yeah, yeah, I just got to finish the sign. They're like, well, actually, you're the only one who can start the session. I can finish the sign. Could we trade positions? <laughs> like, oh, yeah. Yeah, that makes a whole lot of sense, doesn't it? Why don't you come finish the sign and print it off? I'll go start the session since I'm the only one who can do that. What had happened? I'd gotten completely distracted by, sure, something that was good and needed to get done, but I was missing my purpose, right? For me at that moment, finishing the sign was, was not the important thing. Starting the session where, you know, 100 people or so were waiting, yeah, that was a higher priority. This kind of thing happens in the Christian life, doesn't it? We get so often deterred by good things. Sure, the sign needed to go up, right? But, but is this is what Jesus has called me to do. See, we get distracted with so many opportunities that we lose sight of the commands. We get distracted with so many good things that we can do that we stop doing the things he's told us we need to be doing. What an encouragement to sing together today. Do you know we're commanded to do that, to sing to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. It's an act of obedience when we come to worship. It's not for me. It's not for us. It's not just for our general encouragement. We do it because he's told us to. Now, it just so happens to be joyful and, and fun, and I love it. But we do it because he's told us to. We sing because he's told us to. You could go on and on and on about the Christian life, and the question is, am I just doing all sorts of good things, good opportunities out there, or am I really laser-focused in on the things that Jesus has told me to do in his word? This is an important question to ask. What is your mission from Jesus? Well, I actually can answer that question. To glorify God by showing the world that Jesus is the Savior. Do you know that's why he saved you? That's why you're still here on the earth? Have you ever paused to reflect on that before? Like why, when God saves us, why does he just take us home to heaven to be with him, you know, right then? Have you ever thought about that? Well, the reason is he has a purpose for us. He has us here for a reason. This life is, is not what it's all about. It's all about the next life in heaven with him forevermore. That's what it's about. We're going to sing a song in our family service today called Almost Home. Why? 
because that's our home. And we're almost there, but we're still here because he has a purpose for us to let the world know that Jesus is the Savior. And so many things can kind of just sidetrack us. Good things, little signs that need to be put up here and there. (laughs) Cause us to lose sight of what he's really called us to do and why we're here on the earth, each of us. Now, the question is, how is God equipping you for your mission from him? Well, the church is part of how this happens, and it happens specifically through the Word and the Holy Spirit. Here's where we receive our instruction for how God wants us to live, and specifically how He wants us to live out that mission in our different locations, in our families, and in our homes, and in the workplace, and here in the church. This is a place of equipping. We're with the iron sharpening iron of our brothers and sisters in Christ. We help each other become more and more like Jesus so we can better show the world what Jesus is like. Are you showing your family, your coworkers, your friends, even your church what Jesus is like? And how can you grow in your ability to do that? Well, Paul continues to instruct the elders, and in verse 23, we make a big transition. I'm sorry, that's the wrong verse number, 28. Paul transitioned here, and now he begins giving commands to the elders. So this is really like the literal handoff of the baton, where the Apostle Paul is saying, look, I have been leading in these ways. I've shown you by example. I've shown you by my life. I've shown you by my teaching what you should be imitating, and now he kind of hands it off to them giving them these instructions here in verse 28. Now, as we get ready to dig into these verses, you'll notice that these are commands to the pastors, to the elders. And we'll think about what that means, but we're also going to talk about how these commands end up trickling down to the whole body of Christ, ways that we can all grow and be a part of the thriving of the church. So here's how I've put it for our point number three today. We follow shepherds who teach the word. This becomes Paul's focus to the elders. Teach the word. Guard the truth. Watch out for the flock. He warns them actually quite dramatically to beware of false teaching and encourages them to keep faithfully teaching the word. That's part of the reason the church is so important. The regular gathering around the word where we're constantly reminding each other of what the truth is and how we stay faithful to the word of God. So in verse 28, he gives them this command, therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. Now there's a lot in that verse. Let's walk through it quickly uh, and clearly here. The first command is to take heed to yourselves. It's important that they watch out for their own doctrine and faith, that they are men who are in the word. But then he also says, to all the flock. The flock is referring to the church, God's flock. Now here's an interesting statement, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. First, among which they are sheep as well. They're part of the flock. However, the Holy Spirit has done something. He's made them overseers. That word overseer is sometimes translated bishop. Your translations may have that. In fact, that's how it's translated in the pastoral qualifications in 1 Timothy 3. Uh, When one aspires to the office of bishop, that's the same word here as overseer. It has to do with uh, responsibility and leadership and caring for the flock. 
Okay, so that's kind of the idea. So the Spirit has made them overseers to do what? To shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Now, that last phrase can be translated a different way, which he purchased with the blood of his own. Of course, we know it's the blood of the Son. God the Son is God, so it's not wrong to say it was the blood of God that purchased the church. Um, But the blood of his own, I think, is a good translation here of uh, who purchased the church, the Lord Jesus Christ. So what you have in verse 28 is this really short and sweet description of the pastor. Remember, this is written to the elders. The word elder has to do with uh, somebody who's spiritually mature. Then you see they are to be overseers. They're to to have responsibility and to take care of the flock. And finally, they're to shepherd. Now that's where we get our word pastor today. means to shepherd. And in our tradition, that's the word we use for this office elder, overseer, pastor, because it seems to most fully encompass the tasks of this office. We could just say elder, but that just kind of describes the general spiritual maturity. We could say overseer, but that's just one portion of what they do. But pastor really describes all of it, the shepherding of the flock of God. And so that's the term that we use. But we could use elder, we could use, we could even use bishop if we wanted to. Uh, it's part of the, the terms that office is referred to in scripture, all referring to the same office. So Paul is reminding these pastors to take care of themselves in the word and to take care of the flock in the word. And this is a precious command because the church has been purchased with the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, in verse 29 and 30, he warns them that after he leaves, there will be savage wolves. Of course, we're continuing the sheep metaphor here. Uh, He's not talking about literal wolves that would, you know, attack Ephesus or whatever, but false teachers that would rise up in the church. And so this is why Paul says it's so important that they stay grounded in the word and guard the church. He says in verse 30 that there will even be some among them who, uh, we don't know exactly what happened, but they maybe got proud and began to desire a following for themselves because it says at the end of verse 30, they will draw away disciples after themselves. Part of shepherding the way Paul exemplified to them was that we decrease so that Jesus can increase in everyone's view. This is not about gaining a following, it's about pointing people to Christ. And so Paul warns them about those who would spring up among them. These men could be encouraged because the Holy Spirit had equipped them back in verse 28 to do this shepherding. And so Paul tells them to to watch in verse 31 and to remember the way he had shepherded among them himself. Follow his example. He warned them night and day with tears about the importance of the truths that he had been teaching them. God equips pastors to shepherd the flock by teaching the word. And so we must follow shepherds who teach the word. It's part of how the church thrives. One of my very first jobs uh, was pet sitting at someone's house. They had a couple cats, and uh, I was in uh, elementary school at the time, and they offered to pay me uh, it probably sounded like a really small amount today. I don't remember what it was, $5 or something like that, to, to watch their cats. They're going to go away on a trip. 
And so uh, we had set up an appointed time. I was going to come over to their house and receive the instructions that they had for me. And in my thinking, this was, you know, pretty simple, right? You, you change out the kitty litter, you put some food out, uh, no big deal. So I was surprised when I walked in the house and we went to the kitchen and they, they pulled out a notebook here with like four or five pages of instructions of uh, the way I was to do things. And all of a sudden, you know, I'm starting to sweat a little bit. It's like, this got a little more complicated than I realized I'd signed up for. Uh, so apparently the kitties were a little finicky about, you know, when they ate and where they ate and, you know, when the litter was changed or uh, the litter box and, you know, all these different things. Uh, and so everything had to be followed to a T if the, if the kitties were going to be happy during the time away. And so I remember the first day of their trip away, you know, walking into the empty house and the cats were around, you know, it's just like treading lightly, don't injure the cats, don't scare the cats, don't do anything wrong, you know, and so creeping up to the notebook and reading it again, what do I have to do, you know, with shaking hands, trying to get everything right, you know. Well, rest easy, the cats survived and I got my $5 and uh, all, went, all went well. But, but boy, I was alarmed by the pages of notes on how to care for the cats. In the end, it was helpful, right? If I hadn't known those things, if I hadn't known how finicky these little cats were, uh, I could have caused some trouble and ultimately done some harm and, uh, and ruined the relationship. And so by the end of the, the week of doing this, I was thankful for the notes to make sure I had thought through everything and checked everything off the list and done everything right. I'm thankful that God has equipped the church with the scriptures that we can come back to time and time and time again to remind us of how, how God wants the church to function, how he wants us individually in our lives to live and to grow. God equips the church with pastors who can teach and preach the word and so that we can follow that teaching. If you want to get on mission and participate in what God is doing, it begins by studying the Word. And I'd, I'd encourage you to get in the Word. And some of that involves coming to church and our church gatherings around the Word, whether that's our worship service or our, our growth groups or our equipped classes. But that can also be studying the Word on your own. Meeting with another brother or sister in Christ, not just to get coffee and chat, but to open the Scriptures together and to see what it says and be encouraged. This also involves the church recognizing pastors among us. Did you notice that the Holy Spirit made them overseers? Now, as we study the pattern of the New Testament, what we see is that then it's the church who recognizes these overseers. And the one example we have is from Timothy's life, where the Apostle Paul points out that they laid hands on him, recognizing the gift that was in him, or pastoral ministry. So this is why, maybe you've seen it at a pastoral installation or an ordination, often uh, the, the deacons or the other pastors of a church will come up and they'll lay hands on the individual that they're voting on. Why? Because they're, they're recognizing, ah, we see God's enabling strength in this person to, to pastor, to shepherd the church. We actually just recognize what God is doing. We give authority in that sense, saying, I, I will follow this person as they teach the word. What's significant about that is how much it depends on the Holy Spirit. So as we seek as a church to recognize that those, is God, that those God is leading toward pastoral ministry, 
we should be looking for evidence of the Holy Spirit in their lives. It should be those people who display the fruit of the Spirit as a, as a basic starting point. But then on top of that, we begin to notice the spiritual fruit listed in the pastoral qualifications. Those are spiritual things, things that a person can do only by the strength of the Spirit in them. We begin to see God's enabling work. He's using this individual in the life of the church to uh, disciple and to shepherd and to care. Oh, God's at work through this person. A lot of times in our churches, we, we seek out pastors when there's a need in the church, right? Oh, we need somebody else. We, we need to hire somebody. So let's, let's put out feelers and find pastors. But actually, I think it's the other way around. I think the church ought to be recognizing what God is doing in people's lives, seeing who he is leading toward ministry, those who aspire to the office of bishop. At the same time, the church retains the authority to notice that, you know what, that person's not walking in the Spirit anymore. God might want to be enabling them for ministry, but they're saying no to the Spirit. I'm not seeing the fruit of the Spirit like I used to. So we need to ask them to step down from pastoral ministry. The church has that authority as well. And so as Paul warns these pastors, it's a reminder of the gravity of the position of elder in the church and the importance of the teaching and preaching of the word of God and watching, watching out for false teaching in the church. That leads us to the final section here in verses 32 to 38 where we see how we live by the word. And in these final verses, Paul's encouragement to them is really to just obey what Jesus has told them to do. He says in verse 32, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. There's our two things. He commends them to God, who God's presence among them is the Holy Spirit, so he entrusts them to God and to the Holy Spirit, and then he also commends them to the word of his grace. Now, this probably refers most foundationally to the gospel, but we've already noted that Paul didn't only preach the gospel, it was how the gospel played out in all of life, the whole counsel of God. And so he entrusts them into God's care and to the care of the word of God, the message from God. What is that word able to do? Verse 32, it's able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So two things happen. In this life, the church is built up through the word, right? So as they depend on the Holy Spirit and on God's word, the church grows, it is built up. But he also points out the future inheritance, and there's a real sense in which the eternal work we do in this life, growing up the church, becoming more like Jesus, actually grows our inheritance in the next life. Now, sometimes we just think, well, hey, I'm saved, and so I have heaven and, and, and all the, that comes with it. But did you know that by living for the Lord, we grow our eternal inheritance? There's a verse that he talks about. As we live by the power of the Spirit and by the Word of God, it's able to grow that inheritance that comes to us when we're first sanctified, but grows as we do God's eternal work in this life. And that's encouraging. The Spirit and the Word are sufficient to help us live by the Word and to grow the church and to build our eternal inheritance. And so this is what Paul entrusts to them. And true to form, he looks back to his own example among them. 
He says in verse 33, I have coveted no one's silver, or gold, or pillar. I was not greedy, right? Where's Paul putting his hope in his future inheritance? He says that he worked with his own hands, verse 34. Verse 35, he did this so that he could support the weak. It wasn't just so that he wouldn't be greedy, but so that he could also provide for the needs of the needy in the church. And this is all based on what Jesus had said. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, it's interesting, we actually don't have those words in the four Gospels, and so this is an oral tradition, something that Paul had heard, he's passing along, that Jesus said at some point that we, we just don't have recorded anywhere else in Scripture, but they're still the words of Christ and the instruction uh, to us from him through Paul. And so in 36 to 38, we have their emotional goodbye, Paul saying goodbye to his brothers in the Gospel, his co-laborers, as he prepares to leave. And his final parting words are to live by the word, to live that way, to obey the commands of Christ. Friend, do you want to thrive in your life and in your mission? Then approach the word with a humble, tender heart. Come ready to be convicted of sin, ready to turn back to God, ready to walk by faith. Repentance and faith over and over and over again. As we open the scriptures, this is the posture of the believer ready to be changed and to live for Jesus. You want to thrive, open the scriptures that way. If you want to thrive, then lean into the life of the church. God has equipped the church with his word and his spirit so that we can grow and thrive together and accomplish God's mission for us. So I encourage you, lean into the life of the church. Not only being here on Sundays for, for our gathering in worship, where we worship God and hear the preaching of his word, but I encourage you to join a growth group where you can discuss God's word with others. Attend an equip class where you can learn more about the scriptures. Find someone to disciple you where you can walk in God's word. Find someone you can disciple so you can help someone else live by the word and obey Jesus' command to make disciples. God builds his church as we live by his word, and so we must live by the word. This is how God has equipped us to grow and to thrive as the flock of God. If you find yourself drifting, wondering what your purpose is, may I encourage you to come back to the scriptures. God has you here on this earth for a reason. He has a purpose for you. He has a job for you, a task for you. Every day, every moment you have breath, there's a reason. God's involved in your life and he's opening doors for you to serve and to thrive. And if you wanna know exactly what that looks like, lean into the scriptures. Submit to the Spirit's work in your heart and in your life and step by step as you walk by faith, you'll see as God unfolds his purpose in you and uses you to grow the church and thrive in his mission in the world. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for what you have done with your flock. You've purchased us with the blood of your son, and we praise you for it. We ask that you'd help us to live by your word, that each of us in our lives might show others around us what Jesus is like, that the world may know that he is the Savior. Help us to walk in repentance and faith as we seek to live this way, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more resources, visit our website, mbcgrimes.org. 
May the word of Christ dwell in you richly, and to God be the glory.